My name is Umer, and you're tuning into Oats for Breakfast. Our regular listeners will know that we publish two episodes on a monthly basis, on the 1st and the 15th of every month. As you may have noticed, this episode has been published a week and a half late. We had an interview scheduled to take place early in the month, but a health-related concern came up for one of our interviewers, so things couldn't go as planned. Thankfully, everything seems to have worked out all right on that front. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Adam King, who is a postdoctoral visitor in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto. I'm going to be chatting with him today about the failed attempt to organize an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama. Welcome back to the podcast, Adam. Thanks for having me on. All right, so we should begin by going over some of the basics of the union organizing drive in case not all of our listeners uh, have been following. Uh, Where was this drive? I mean, I know I already said Bessemer, Alabama, but what is that? And uh, who was involved and uh, how did it turn out? Yeah, so this was an organizing drive at an Amazon facility warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which is sort of near Birmingham. And this facility serves sort of as the central uh, warehousing hub for the southeastern United States. Uh, The union involved was the retail wholesale and department store workers. I'll call them RW for short in the interview. Um, They have a history of organizing in the South, particularly among food processing workers, poultry workers. Um, RW's parent union is the United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, which um, Canadian listeners might be more familiar with. So there were hopes that that RW would have uh, firmer roots in the American South than, than previous unions who tried to organize in the South, such as the UAW, uh, who tried to organize auto, auto plants in Mississippi and, and Tennessee unsuccessfully over the last several years. Um, so as it stands right now, the union lost the election. The vote count was 1,798 to 738, so pretty decisively lost. Um, but I should point out that technically the vote hasn't been certified by the National Labor Relations Board yet. So there are many challenged ballots, around 500, which is not enough to overturn the outcome of the election but um, all kinds of allegations of of unfair labor practices and employer intimidation uh, outside of the law um, have been leveled against against Amazon. So there's a very good chance that the vote could be challenged and might even result in a second election. Well, and the other uh, interesting feature of this drive was the low turnout, because how many workers are there in the facility? Like more than 5,000, right? Yes, there are more than 5,800, according to Amazon. So a couple of things should be said about that. Uh, the union in, in the beginning assumed that there were 1,500 workers uh, in the facility. And this was because they were working with basically workers' word inside of the facility and whatever they could gather from public records. So the assumption was 1,500 workers inside the warehouse. And Amazon is under no obligation to tell them how many employees were there or to disclose an employee list 
or anything like that. So RW petitioned the National Labor Relations Board for their election in October, on October 20th. And a month after that, Amazon claimed that there were over 5,800 workers employed in the facility. So there was a hearing to determine what the bargaining unit size would actually be in, in December. So the union had to basically scramble to get additional cards signed, and they did relatively well in order to meet the threshold to actually have, have the election. So the numbers are disputed, but the figure most commonly cited is that the union had around 34% of employee signed cards by the time of that hearing, um, which it has to be sort of conceded that that is well below what most organizers would say is sufficient to win a union election. You need 30% in order to actually have the election, but most organizers will tell you that you need to go in with at least 70, 75% of active employees who have signed cards because during the fight before the election, you're going to lose votes through employer intimidation. It, it virtually never goes up. Like the number of cards you have is going to be more than the number of votes that you get. So um, the other thing that should be mentioned as a part of that is that Amazon was working with a new rule under the National Labor Relations Board that's from the Trump era that basically gives more power to the employer to determine the size of the bargaining unit. So the RW union didn't contest Amazon's characterization of the size of the bargaining unit, I think in part because they knew that they would lose if they did that because of this new rule under Trump, which gives the employer a lot more um, sway in determining who's in the bargaining unit. All right. So actually, before getting into more of the specifics of, of how the organizing drive went and, and why it failed... It might be worthwhile to comment on why it was followed so closely by leftists and labor organizers across North America. Like, why was I reading so much about it? Uh, is it because there's some uh, there's little else going on, and when it comes to labor organizing, or you know, and uh, and really, like, what would it have meant had the drive succeeded? Well. I would say that it rarely bodes well for the for the labor movement or the health of the labor movement when so much attention is is fixated on one campaign. Um, but that's it's sort of understandable. Amazon uh, has been a bit of a white whale for the labor movement internationally. Um, so far, only one other attempt to unionize Amazon employees has taken place among a select group of tech workers in Delaware, which which also lost. Uh, Amazon is unionized in some European countries, um, but that's mainly the result of there being sectoral bargaining agreements there, which cover whole industries, like whole warehousing or transportation industries. So, so Amazon is covered as a matter of, of statutory obligation there. But even in, in those European countries where, that's, where that exists, unions internationally have had just a miserable time dealing with Amazon. They are just a, an out-and-out anti-union employer. But furthermore, I think so much attention has been focused on Amazon for other reasons that are somewhat specific to the pandemic. For one, Amazon uh, and its CEO, Jeff Bezos, have been publicly seen to have been benefited enormously from, from the pandemic. The surge in online shopping has increased uh, the profits of Amazon as well as the personal wealth of, of Bezos. Uh, and second, there's been growing concern and a lot of commendable journalism actually about the horrendous labor practices and working conditions at Amazon, both in its warehouses and 
perhaps more so in its in its delivery services, which for the most part are actually subcontracted to, to other firms. But I think that's why there's been so much attention focused on Amazon. Um, and so in, in a piece that you wrote for Passage, uh, you said, and I quote, as I see it, there are two broad takeaways here. The first concerns the legal barriers unions face and the reforms needed to give future organizing campaigns a better chance at success. The second concerns the necessity of building supermajority union support among workers. So let's see if we can go over both of these points in a bit more detail. But to start with, what are the legal barriers facing unions? I mean, I think you you mentioned one already, and that's the Trump era changes. Uh, remind me again, they allow uh, employers to determine the size of the bargaining unit. Yeah. Okay. And so what so what are some more of the challenges and, and what are the reforms that need to be made and, and how can they be won? Well, I think the major thing that this loss demonstrates is just how broken labor law is in the United States. And I'm sure that's not news to most people, but I think that there were a lot of people, maybe even the workers involved, who maybe didn't know the extent of just how bad things have gotten including how far employers will go to intimidate workers out of choosing collective bargaining. So it might be helpful to start with just thinking about what the certification process looks like in the United States. So if you want to have a legally recognized union in the United States, which is really the only way to have a secure majority of workers in a workplace unionized, then you need to do basically one of three things. The first and the most common way is you need to get workers in the workplace to sign union cards. You need at least 30%, as I mentioned, four of those workers to have signed cards to then petition the National Labor Relations Board to hold a secret ballot election in which the union needs 50% plus one to certify. So that's the, the normal, the main way that you do it. The second way is you can sign cards and then request that the employer signs a neutrality agreement or basically voluntarily recognizes the union. Of course, that's pretty rare, and it's obviously not going to happen in the case of something like Amazon. And the third is that you can engage in basically a recognition strike where you get workers to walk out and not come back until the boss recognizes the union. Again, that's pretty rare because all kinds of variables are involved. How replaceable are the workers? You know, How unique are their skills, etc.? And there's nothing to prevent workers from simply just replacing workers or employers from replacing workers. So the first option is really what workers and unions are facing. They need that NLRB route so that they can form a majority union. But there are dozens and dozens of roadblocks along the way. And in this case, many of them are on display. So for starters, the union needs to know, like we talked about earlier, how many people are in the workplace. But Amazon doesn't have to provide those records. And it's often very difficult to know. And because of the surge, around the pandemic, the surge in online shopping, Amazon actually engaged in a massive hiring spree, the largest in US history, in fact. And so a big part of that bargaining unit growth or the growth of the size of the workplace is likely a result of the surge in online shopping. But on the other hand, it's pretty clear also that Amazon flooded the bargaining unit with people who, you know, maybe they're temporary employees or they're in supervisory roles probably shouldn't be in the bargaining unit and so on. Another thing to note about organizing in a warehouse is that 
it, this in particular warehouse has a hundred percent turnover per year. So most of these people who you're organizing are not going to be there uh, this year, next time. So that's also a, a hurdle. You know, it's industry specific, but it's a hurdle. Additionally, in, in the US, employers have a, a ton of leeway to intimidate workers from unionizing. They can hold captive audience meetings uh, where they basically just flood workers with propaganda, anti-union propaganda, and they can do that throughout the workplace. And they did it in this case about how you know unions are just a business. They're there to collect four or $500 in dues from everyone. Uh, they told workers that there's no guarantee that once a union's in place, that the company won't just decrease pay or take away benefits that they already have, right? Everything's on the table. So if a union's not highly engaged in, in organizing and inoculating workers against this kind of messaging, uh, I can really sink an organizing drive in a, in a, in a workplace where you've got 100% turnover or that you don't even really know the size of the bargaining unit. It's difficult to do that. Um, anyway, and then there's also a, a huge multi-billion dollar industry of union busting law firms and HR firms, uh, which Amazon and other employers who are flush with cash are perfectly willing to spend lavishly on uh, if it means stamping out a union drive. Uh, in this case, because the, the fight over the balloting, you know, how the vote would be conducted, whether it would be in person or in mail, that's, that's an additional problem. So once it was determined that the vote would be by mail, Amazon requested that the National Labor Relations Board set up voting boxes on the facilities, which is an unprecedented request that employers don't make that request because it's ludicrous. It clearly violates neutrality rules uh, and, uh, you know, votes normally take place on a neutral premises that's outside of employer intimidation. And they did get denied by the NLRB that request. They basically just leaned on the post office to do it directly. And because Amazon is the largest customer of the post office and the U.S. post office is currently uh, stacked with a bunch of Trump appointees on the board, which maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. They, they acquiesced and set up these, these mailboxes on the premises. So, it, you know, it's pretty easy to imagine that many workers would be intimidated by that. Amazon is actively telling workers to, to vote at work, to bring their votes in. And we've heard from, from workers that said that, you know, they weren't sure if Amazon was involved in the vote counting, you know, felt intimidated, felt that they needed to vote and perhaps maybe needed to vote no. So that's also something that I'm sure will be considered before the, the National Labor Relations Board. But this level of intimidation in general, like some of it probably steps outside of what's permissible under the National Labor Relations Act and the various amendments over the years. But most of it is perfectly within legal bounds. This is what employers do during union drives. And there's very little that unions and workers can do to prevent it. You also wrote a bit about the changes that need to be brought in. And obviously, the context is a bit better than it was under Trump. But the Biden is administration isn't exactly uh, the, the most pro-labor administration. It's, it's hard to say. At, at the moment, things don't look promising. So one of the things that this campaign, besides just highlighting how broken U.S. labor law is, you know, it also amplified some of the organizing that's been going on around the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is on many people on the left and in the labor movement's mind. 
um, so much attention has been devoted to this and, and Amazon was kind of a test case or case study on exactly why this is so important. It would, it would make many of the things that Amazon did during this union drive illegal. Now, of course, you have to think about the enforcement mechanisms around that too. It's fine and well to have it on paper, but are you going to beef up the labor department to actually crack down on this is a separate question. But the problem with something like the PRO Act, of course, is that it has to pass through the various choke points of the American legislative process. So it's passed the House of Representatives already, but I think everyone agrees that it's not going to pass the Senate with the filibuster still in place, the filibuster where they need 60 votes in order for it to to be signed into law. Uh, They're not going to get it. They're not going to get 10 Republicans to sign this thing. It's right now, it doesn't look like they're going to get 50 Democrats. So, and that's not just, you know, your typical conservative Joe Manchin types. There are additional uh, Democrats who who don't support it and probably won't. So that's, that's also a problem. I mean, how do you get it through these various checkpoints? There doesn't seem to be commitment, party discipline on the Democratic side to actually push this thing through. Even though I, we ha- I think we do un- maybe unfortunately sort of begrudgingly give Joe Biden credit that he has been actually more pro-labor than I thought he was going to be. The video that he did where he didn't explicitly come out and support the, the Amazon organizing drive, but he did nonetheless uh, say that uh, workers have a right to vote in the union election free of intimidation. And something else that sort of surprised me in the video, he also said that the National Labor Relations Act doesn't just give workers the right to vote for a union free of intimidation, but encourages collective bargaining, which I think is, it was surprising to hear him emphasize the fact that the the NLRA does say, in fact, that collective bargaining is a social good and it should be promoted. That was interesting to hear a president say that. So the PRO Act would be fantastic. Uh, It wouldn't solve everything uh, and it's unlikely to pass. So there are a couple of things that could be done outside of this sort of larger piece of, of legislation. So there are a couple of rules that Biden could attempt to implement that would help in situations like this in the future. So if you're not going to be able to get con- comprehensive labor law reform, you might be able to do a couple of smaller things that are at least helpful. So one, there's this thing called the persuader rule. And this was put in place, Obama put this in place actually, and then Trump repealed it. But the rule effectively requires companies to disclose all of their hirings of anti-union law firms during a campaign. So right now, they have to disclose if the agents from union-busting law firms speak directly to the workers. So if they just give advice to an employer during a campaign, then they don't have to disclose that they hired them. And of course, companies do all kinds of things to hide the spending that they of, you know, to hire anti-union firms, they hide it in various ways. So if you reinstated this persuader rule, you, it might not sound like much, and it might not even bring down the amounts that companies actually spend on union busting, but it would provide unions with further ammunition during campaigns to say to workers, like, look, look at all this money that your boss spends on fighting you in this union drive while they refuse to collective bar- collectively bargain or provide you with decent standards of, of pay and benefits. Like, shouldn't that tell you something? It, it would be an, uh, another tool in the arsenal of labor. And there's a chance that this maybe wouldn't work either because it, it might end up in federal court and be struck down. But it is 
something that's worthwhile. Second, Biden made a promise, which he hasn't followed through on yet, but he is getting closer on it, that he would reinstitute or institute, actually, I guess this hasn't been passed into law before, a neutrality rule, which basically the neutrality rule would require any company that holds a contract with the federal government to remain neutral in any union election. So Amazon right now is a huge contractor of the federal government. It's Amazon Web Services, which is its uh, cloud computing subsidiary. It contracts with the federal government for billions of dollars worth of intelligence and national security services. And Amazon has pursued those contracts aggressively. So it clearly values them. Uh, so that could be a considerable point of leverage in the future. If a Biden White House included that neutrality uh, rule, um, actually, which it has uh, included in the proposed new infrastructure bill, the American Jobs Plan, um, that could make a big difference. Now, it might face challenges in the Senate because, again, they're not going to get 60 votes on the, the infrastructure bill. So they're going to try and do it through budget reconciliation, which means they only need 50 votes, just a simple majority. And as we saw with the minimum wage, the attempt to increase the minimum wage, the parliamentarian could strike this provision from the bill and say, this doesn't actually have any impact on the budget. So you can't put this in, you can't put this in the bill. You can't require contractors to remain neutral on, in union elections. But, you know, you can overrule the parliamentarian, which they didn't do with the minimum wage, but it can be done. So it might be one avenue because I do think that uh, this might be something that's effective in the future to at least uh, impose some discipline on employers who have federal contracts. Hey, you want to know something interesting about Joe Biden and uh, labor? Of course I do. You know that, uh, that recent uh, Scorsese movie uh, on uh, Jimmy Hoffa, The Irishman, right? That's what it's called? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that movie is based on a book titled I Heard You Paint Houses. You probably remember the line from the movie. Yes. And and the book is, of course, it's it's just a fuller story of the, the main character in the movie, uh, Frank Sheeran, who's, you know, I, I'm guessing most people have seen the movie, but in case they haven't, he's, you know, like a labor organizer slash mafia hitman. And uh, anyway, so Joe Biden appears in the book, um, uh, I Heard You Paint Houses, I think in the 70s, when he's running for, for Senate in Delaware, he is seen as a more pro-labor candidate than, of course, his Republican rival. And so Frank Sheeran, who would go on to murder Jimmy Hoffa, he attempts, or I think he successfully is able to block the distribution of the, the printed materials from, uh, from the Republican candidate's campaign. Uh, and so helps Joe Biden to win that race. And so, you know, Biden, I guess, partly got his start <laughs> as an elected official, thanks to corrupt uh, labor practices, according to, allegedly, according to this story. Allegedly, allegedly. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. I mean, Biden is a strange character, in my opinion. Like, he is so clearly... You know, representative of the the neoliberal shift in the Democratic Party, the reliance on on the fire, you know, finance, insurance, real estate sector as a as a kind of funding base of the party. He's you know been in the pocket of the credit card companies and so on. You know, senator from Delaware, all this, 
all this stuff. But then he, he balances this with a kind of like, you know, every man, six pack Joe, which seems to hit home, I guess. Like, and he, he is old enough that he's of an era that like elections involve like going to the union hall and shaking hands. And like, even in his speech style, sometimes it, there is a, there is an aspect of kind of working class Joe that, that sticks, I guess, and is effective. It's, it's a strange blend. Yeah. But okay, so let's uh, move on to the second concern that you raised here um, in your in your passage piece. You said, or you raised the concern of uh, the necessity of building a supermajority union support among workers. Um, and we've sort of gotten uh, gone into this a little bit. But I'm assuming that you also don't by this, you don't just mean, uh, you know, getting 70% of cards signed is probably something more here in winning supermajority union support among workers. So so what do you mean and and what would it involve? Yeah, well, I'll just start by saying that uh, I'm not too crit- too critical of the union's effort in the, in the organizing, organizing drive. I know that there are some who have taken that position that the RW effectively knew it was going into a defeat in November, but decided to, to petition for the election nonetheless. You know, I wasn't there, so I don't think it's really my place to, to Monday morning quarterback about what the union should or shouldn't have done. But with that being said, it is very important, not just in terms of signed cards, but in terms of building this kind of support necessary to make a campaign like this successful. Obviously, going into an NLRB election, as I said, we know that you typically lose votes from the time you sign cards to the time you actually hold the vote. And I mean, one thing to mention here, which is also sort of related to the labor law point, is that these elections drag out, just like American electoral politics, they they drag out for far too long. If this election were held in Ontario, the election would be held a week from the time that workers petition for it. So not to say that employers don't engage in all kinds of intimidation, they do, but they have far less time to do it. Um, But even if a union is successful in certifying, they have a huge battle ahead of them in terms of securing a first collective agreement. So you need to have a super majority of workers engaged with the union uh, for that to be successful, to actually get that first contract. Um, During the organizing drive, plenty of case study evidence shows that it's of critical importance to have also local community organizations, faith-based organizations on the side of workers, and that's not only in terms of having them uh, having their support or you know winning workers to the union cause because organizations like churches that they belong to support it, but that's also in terms of thinking about who has power locally and who can then put pressure on people like local elected officials to, if not come out and support the drive, then at least remain neutral during the campaign. Um, and not sort of just take the employer side. Um, in this particular campaign, there's also the question of union dues. And this is an area, I think, where we can be reasonably critical of the way that the RW union handled this question. So Alabama is a right to work state. It's actually enshrined in their constitution. It went to a, to a, a referendum vote a couple of years ago. And it's in the Alabama Constitution that the state is right to work. 
Could you explain what that is? Because I think uh, some of our Canadian listeners might not know. Because yeah. I, I, this has come up on the podcast before, and you know, I, right to work sounds great. I mean, it's like a, it's like a full employment policy. No, no, it's sort of the opposite of that. Uh, I, I forget who, but I had a colleague once who presented a paper, and it was called "The Other Right to Work." about full employment. Uh, so, you know, the, this right to work, the one that actually is in practice, uh, is basically re- removes union security. So it means that if you get hired into a unionized workplace, you're not compelled to be a member of the union or to pay dues. So what it does is effectively defund unions by removing that security clause. Like here in Canada, when you get hired in a unionized workplace, you automatically pay dues. It's called the RAND formula. It's deducted by the employer and then remitted to the union. It's the cost of administering the collective agreement and representing you. The other side of it is that the union has an obligation to represent you. Like if you file a grievance or, you know, in collective bargaining, that's what they're doing. They're representing you. It's almost like a tax to a representative institution. So in the U.S., that's in a right to work state. I think I believe there are 27 of them. Uh, that's not the case. So again, you don't have to pay dues, you're not compelled to, but the employer is still compelled to represent you because they are the certified bargaining unit. So, you know, what this usually means is that it's very difficult to maintain a unionized workplace if you're draining the funds away from from the union. And that's really the the purpose of it. Um, So Alabama is a right to work state, it's in the constitution. So in that case, you basically, during the organizing drive, You need to convince workers of the importance of dues. And, you know, we know that this is even in non-right to work states. This is one of the first things that employers seize on to scare workers that unions are just there to collect dues. You don't have any control over what they do with those dues, especially in a conservative state. They might convince workers that, hey, they just give it, you know, they give a bunch of it to the Democratic Party. And, hey, don't you know that Democrats support abortion and all the rest of it? So you can play those kinds of games. So the union needs to you know, convince workers that the union is theirs and that dues are an important part of a representative organization which they have control of. And they ultimately need to, you know, to fight back against this, this rhetoric around dues. And in this case, RW just conceded on it. In, in over a dozen interviews, the president of the union, when asked about this dues question, just said, yeah, in Alabama, they don't have to pay dues. Instead of countering that, like by saying, you know, how important it is to, to pay dues and how awful right to work is for union and u- unions and unionized workers, instead they just basically said, well, you know, it's Alabama, so they're not going to have to pay dues anyway. So that's not an effective uh, counterpoint by the employer. Uh, yeah. Why would they concede on that kind of thing? I mean, I would just say that I, I think they, ha- they thought they sort of had their hands tied with everything that Amazon was doing. And I just think that they felt like it wasn't an additional fight they could win. But it's a clear indication that the that things are leaning against you if you're not willing to have um, this basic ideological battle over the importance of something like union dues. I mean, that's central to what it means to be uh, an independent working class organization. Like dues are important because it's it's you paying the way for for the battle against the employer in the workplace. It's just, it's fundamental. And it's very easy to demonstrate to workers. I mean, sometimes these types of arguments take place on a non-rational level and you have to convince people just subjectively that it's good. 
to be in a union, but you can also just show them empirically like, hey, in unionized workplaces, you get far more in wage increases and benefits than you pay in dues. This is a rational investment. If you're a, if you're a worker in a warehouse, this is a rational investment. Paying dues gets you more. Collective representation gets you far more than individual negotiation. And I guess when it comes to these kind of organizing drives, is it worthwhile to think about them in, in a kind of layered way? I mean, you know, on the one hand, you're organizing this very concrete sort of effort to you know unionize these workers at this one particular place, but then there's also a, a broader ideological terrain that needs to be contested. And, you know, whether or not this particular uh, drive succeeds or fails, that that ideological terrain also needs to be shifted. And so I wonder, you know, to what extent that needs to become important. Um, but uh, actually, I mean, that can sometimes be seen as a, as a way to just say, well, maybe we'll lose this and then we'll continue to shift the ideological terrain and then you just keep losing the, the specific fights that you're involved in. Yeah, there, there is definitely this tendency on, on the left that, you know, there's victory even in defeat. And sometimes I worry about that, that framing. And, you know, I, was, I thought as soon as this was announced, the loss was announced that you'd see a lot of this, people trying to sort of regroup and, and find the silver lining. Um, there is an aspect to this that we just have to look square in the face that it is a loss and learn the lessons from the loss and not try and sugarcoat it as a defeat or as a win, sorry. Um, but, you know, I think it's also important to keep in mind that partly because of how stacked labor law is against workers, that these campaigns often take several attempts. So Amazon is a brutal and extremely well-resourced employer uh, and it's got the law on its side. I think it would be a huge surprise if they didn't come out on top in this campaign. Um, but I'm sure that the union and the critical mass of workers at this facility who will continue to, to push for unionization, I'm sure they've learned a lot in this experience and hopefully they've connected with other organizers at, at Amazon facilities around the US and, and in Canada and are, are working to push this to keep, to keep going, you know, I mean, the RW has, has organized poultry workers, as I said, in the state before too. And there's a Smithfield plant that's not far from there. And, and in that case, it took three NLRB elections to get certified. And I think those took place over a 15 year or more period. So these, these are long-term battles. Okay, so let's shift focus to Canada, because as you've pointed out, the context is a bit different from the US. Um, and could you talk about in some more detail about what some of those differences are and and what they might mean if if they mean anything at all for labor organizing here what will it take to organize amazon in canada yeah well i mean as i said the law is a little more favorable here um some of what people are after in the us in the pro act is already there in the provincial labor legislation in canada you know, one big thing, as I mentioned before, is that the window of time between the petition for a vote and the actual vote is much shorter here in Canada. So there is less opportunity for employer intimidation. But we shouldn't neglect the fact that employers are, they're ready, no matter what the window of time is. So you're dealing with the same anti-union employer 
um, you'd still have a very, very hard fight, even with marginally better laws here in Canada. You know, what it would take to, to unionize Amazon is, is a lot of organizing, a lot of hard work. Uh, I'm sure that, and I know there are people engaged in this work. And so I'll, I would maybe leave it to them to, to uh, articulate how exactly to get this done. But I will say that, in my opinion, there are still significant reforms to labor law that are needed here in Canada, in, in both countries, really. And I mean, one of them is switching to, to a card check certification so that you eliminate the second stage of having to have a labor board certified vote to begin with. This is a considerable obstacle, I mean, no matter the window of time between the petition and the vote. So if you could get rid of that, uh, remove some of that employer intimidation, that opportunity for employer intimidation, I think that would make a big difference, especially in, in situations like this, where there is this large employer very dominant in the labor market. That's something else that we I didn't really mention before, but Amazon, th this is a low-wage region. It's a low-wage state. I mean, they come in and they you know, advertise that they're paying $15 an hour and they're a great employer and all this kind of stuff. I mean, relative to what's available, uh, you know, that might look like that, but relative to other warehouse and transportation work, it's actually much lower. So, it's, I mean, and they're a challenging employer. So card check certification would be a way to get around this somewhat. Um, I also think as a sort of complementary piece of legislation that we should reinstate the, the banning of replacement workers so that if uh, a union didn't go the card check route and tried to do a recognition strike instead that they, they might be uh, more protected or new certified unions who can't get a first contract and, and need to strike for it are more protected from being simply replaced by scabs. Those would both be helpful. And I think, you know, long-term ultimately shifting away from the way that we determine bargaining units, the size of bargaining units and, and the level at which they bargain, I think is also important. Shifting toward a system where unions are able to bargain more broadly across workplaces, to include more workers and to, to really have more power over setting who's in the bargaining unit uh, and, what, and what it looks like, I think would be very, very helpful for, for unions and workers. Uh, you know, the issue with all of these kinds of proposed, all these proposals is that you have this problem, what uh, Chris Maisano in a, in a good article recently referred to as labor's double bind. And I've written about this too in a, in a journal called Work, Employment and Society that effectively you need labor law reforms so that workers can organize what you need to organize to get the labor law reforms. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult challenge to unravel, but um, long-term in order to really increase the strength of the labor movement, there are significant reforms needed to, to labor law. And, uh, you know, if you're going to really make inroads with something like Amazon, the, the, you've got to change the political landscape in which that takes place. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Adam. This has been great. Um, well, it's kind of been depressing, but it's been good to learn. <laughs> uh, there's, there's hope. There's hope. There is hope, yes. Uh, okay, so hopefully we'll, next time we have you on, it'll be to talk about you know, a, a victory at an Amazon fulfillment center. I hope so. Thanks for tuning in to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. 
I'm going to link Adam's piece, which I referenced in the interview. Um, I'll link it in the episode description uh, in case you'd like to read it. Also, in case you want to hear some more about the Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, and the book that it's based on, we actually did an episode on it uh, a while ago. It was episode 36, and it was titled Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and the Corruptions of Capitalist Society. It was a good episode. You might want to check it out in case you haven't listened to it yet. Because this episode was published late, the next one will be a bit late as well. Hopefully not as late, but there's a knock-on effect that will probably only be resolved over the next month or so. So once again, I hope you don't mind too much. And thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon.